1 Corinthians 1.18. For the preaching of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. Praise the Lord, absolutely. You know, church family, foundations save lives. I saw this firsthand in 2005 after Hurricane Katrina had struck the Gulf Coast. And while working in a neighborhood in Slidell, Louisiana, I was completely shocked by the utter devastation that I saw as complete neighborhoods were wiped off the map. Except on one street, there was one house that was on the waterfront that stood firm. One of my teammates went to the homeowner and asked him how his house was still standing. And his response was, I dug down as deep as I could until I hit rock. And from there, I built up my house. And having a sure foundation for this man, that it not only saved his home, but it saved his life. You see, without a solid base, the entire structure will crack, it will come uh, crashing down. And so in 1 Peter chapter 2, Simon Peter is solidifying the foundation of first century believers who are suffering for the sake of the gospel. Let me show you. Grab your Bibles and turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2. We're going through a sermon series as a church entitled Imperishable, in which we're walking through Simon Peter's first letter. And what we're seeing as a faith family here in chapter 2, is how Simon Peter is seeking to undergird the faith of these believers with theological truths. As they're being persecuted, he's giving them a firm foundation to stand upon. And so before he gets to the more practical section of his letter, he gives one more uh, theological truth to kind of undergird their faith in Christ. Isn't it interesting that Peter is giving those who are swimming for their lives in the sea of suffering doctrine. He is undergirding their feet with rock to stand on. May I say to you that when you go through suffering in your life, you need more of God's word, not less. You need more theological truth, not less. For the past 35 verses, Peter has been pointing to Jesus and all that he has done for us in the gospel. And so before he gets to the application of the gospel throughout the rest of his letter, he gives one more truth to plant into the heart of these gospel warriors who are weary for their persecution that they're enduring. So if you notice here in verses 4 through 10, Peter is drawing lines to the Old Testament, to Israel, and he is connecting them to believers in Jesus. In this section, Peter's like a football coach who's standing at a chalkboard designing plays. It's like chalk dust is filling the air and with a, a wafting of aroma of chalk dust as he is connecting these dots of biblical history that go back to Exodus and Leviticus and 1 Kings and Psalms and even Isaiah. 
And he's making these connections between what happened with Old Testament Israel and how it applies to believers today. And he's bringing these Old Testament scriptures and he's bringing these rich theological truths to bear on first century Christ followers. And praise God, even though you and I are 1900 years removed from the uh, the original audience of this letter, the recipients of this letter, this letter still has a life-altering, mind-blowing truth for you and I to live out today. And so this morning, as we're going to see in the text, I want you to see there's two ways that the gospel foundation of Jesus, it works for the church. I want you to see this here in the text. First, the gospel foundation, it creates a new purpose for God's people. It's a new purpose for God's people. Look at verse four. Simon Peter writes, as you come to him, a living stone, rejected by people, but chosen and honored by God, you yourselves as living stones, a spiritual house, are being built to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in scripture, see, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and honored cornerstone, and the one who believes in him will never be put to shame. So honor will come to you who believe, for the unbelieving, the stone that the builders rejected, this one has become the cornerstone, and a stone to stumble over and a rock to trip over. They stumble because they disobey the word. They were destined for this. Peter writes, verse four, as you come to him, that the tone of this phrase is that of intimacy and, and closeness. As you draw near in your personal relationship with Christ. You see, the gospel is not just information to know, it's an invitation to come. And here Simon Peter is saying, as you draw near to Jesus, he, verse 4, is a living stone. Now that's a fascinating title that, that they're, Simon Peter is giving to the Lord. It's an oxymoron. It's two words that don't go together. Kind of like uh, jumbo shrimp or act naturally or Kentucky football. Okay? They don't go together. They don't work. We can all agree that stones are not living beings. But here we see Simon Peter saying, this is a living stone. What's Peter saying? Well, he tells us in verse 6. Jesus is the chosen and honored cornerstone in Zion. He is, verse 7, the stone that the builders rejected that has become the chief cornerstone. He is the rock, verse 8, that people trip over. Don't miss this truth in your notes. Jesus is the chief cornerstone upon which the firm foundation of the church is built. You see, the chief cornerstone was the first stone that would be laid for a building. And from that one stone, all of the other stones for the structure would take their mark from that first stone. If this stone was off, if it was not laid correctly, the rest of the structure would come crashing down. Well, the church's one foundation is Jesus Christ. He is the one upon which the whole structure of the church stands firm. And he is the living stone because of the resurrection. Yesterday I was listening to the radio and I heard a news report about a celebrity cult 
personality leader who has died. And the, all of his cult followers are now totally walking away from what they first believed. And as I heard that, I said to myself, another reason why the resurrection matters. Because if you have cult leaders who do not make it past death, they are not worth following. It hit me yesterday. Any belief system based upon a dead leader will not ultimately remain. Whether if that, that belief system is based upon Joseph Smith or Jim Jones or Mohammed or any other religious leader, their bones are in the ground. But Jesus, the chief cornerstone, he died and rose again. He is the living stone who lives forever. But this living stone, verse 4, was rejected by people. He was, verse 7, rejected by the builders. The Jews and the religious leaders, they scorned Jesus. They hated Jesus. They wanted to kill Jesus. So when God's appointed time came, they captured him in the dead of night. He stood before Pilate and the Jews to give an account, and they all raised their voices and shouted, Crucify him! Crucify him! Crucify him! They rejected the chief cornerstone of the church. They stumbled over the one who was to come and die for them. He is the stone that the builders rejected, even though the living stone was rejected. However, don't miss last part of verse 4. He was chosen and honored by God. God looked upon his son and said, that's my boy. We see this in Matthew chapter 3 at Jesus' baptism. When he comes up out of the water, the Spirit of God fell on him like a dove. And a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Jesus is the living stone, rejected by man, but the chosen and treasured by God. Now watch in the text how Peter brings this truth to bear upon us. Verse 5, he says, you yourselves as living stones. Now, Peter is calling believers living stones. Isn't that amazing? That we too are stones who are alive. You see, because of the resurrection of Jesus, we too are alive forever in him. Jesus said in John chapter 11, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he, what? Live. We are living stones. But in what way are we stones? We're certainly not the foundation stone. That position is held exclusively by Jesus. Well, he tells us what kind of stones we are, verse 5. You yourselves as living stones, a spiritual house, are being built. You see, the people of God, the church, are being built into something. Well, what is that something? I want you to see three ways we have identified a new purpose through this new foundation. First, I want you to see that we are the new temple. Look at verse 5. Peter says, a spiritual house being built. You see, as living stones, we are being built into a spiritual house. This phrase probably shocked these first century believers, it probably blew their minds because those of Jewish descent knew that there is one spiritual house. There is one temple and it's located in Jerusalem. 
They could go to 1 Kings chapter 6 and see where King Solomon built a temple for the glory of God and for the purpose of worship. And so for Jews, worship took place in one location, the temple. And that is certainly not anywhere near these five provinces where Simon Peter is writing this letter. But verse, verse 5, Peter saying, no, the temple is no longer an address in downtown Jerusalem. The temple is you. You are God's temple. God is building a new temple, and it's the people of God. Many of us probably remember the childhood hand game where we made our hands like this and said, here's the church, and here's the steeple, and open it up, and there are the people. Well, that's a fun game. I've got a problem with it because the church is not primarily a building. And the church is not primarily made up of a steeple. The church are the people of Christ. We are the people whom Christ died for. And while I am grateful for physical buildings in which we can gather and we can worship, the church is not brick and mortar. Y'all, this building could come crashing down tomorrow and the church remains. We march forward because we are not marked primarily by a building. We are marked as the people of God who have been purchased by the blood of Christ. That's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. In 2 Corinthians 6, he says, for we are the temple of the living God. The writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 3, verse, verse 6, but Christ was faithful as a son over his household, and we are that household. And y'all, the church of Jesus Christ is marching forward all over the world. Don't miss this. God is building a global temple made up of living stones from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. You will not see this on the ticker on the bottom of your TV screen. But the truth remains, God's temple is growing. And it's made up of people from all over the world, from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. And every moment of every day, God is drawing people to faith in Jesus, even when you and I don't see it. And this is a humbling truth, but it's real. You and I are pebbles in the grand canyon of God's global temple. He is doing something so big and marvelous and one day we will see it, Revelation 5 and Revelation 7, when we are gathered around the throne. We're going to see this global temple that God is building. But no matter who you are, old or young, tall or short, rich or poor, in Christ we are the new temple. But secondly, we see that we are the new priesthood. Verse 5, he says a holy priesthood. You see, Old Testament priests had the important job of offering animal sacrifices in the temple. Well, Jesus, who is our great high priest, he was the perfect sacrifice offering. As the mediator between God and man, he became the sin offering at the cross. And through his death, he made a way for us to come into the very presence of God. Now you see, we have access straight to God because we are priests. 
We are no longer under the old covenant. You see, back in the old covenant, only the high priest could enter into the holy of holies, and that was only one time per year. But now, in Christ, all of us are priests. So much so that the writer of Hebrews commands us in Hebrews 4.16 to come boldly into the throne of grace. Never would any Jew ever be able to do that before Jesus. Well, through Jesus, our great high priest, we can boldly go into the very presence of God. You see, this is one of the many doctrines that Catholicism gets wrong. You don't need an earthly priest to intercede on your behalf. No, verse 5, Peter's saying all believers in Jesus are a holy priesthood. The doctrine of the priesthood of the believer means that everyone who is in Christ has direct access to God. 16 years ago, I went to a Billy Graham crusade, and I went to go listen to hear and experience the entire environment. And before the event took place, I was sitting next to a couple of ladies. I didn't know who they were, but I heard them talking. And one of them said to the other, now, you know, when, G when Billy Graham prays, God hears him. And I thought to myself, well, he hears me too. And in fact, he hears the prayers of all believers who are followers of Christ. You see, a seven-year-old who knows Jesus has the same access to God as Billy Graham or Simon Peter. You see, here, Peter's saying, listen, the priesthood is no longer designated to the Levites. The priesthood are all who have put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And the beauty of it is no matter how old or young you are, if you are in Christ, the enemy fears when we come as little children before our Father and we come with big faith and we come boldly to Jesus and we begin interceding on behalf of others. We are, 1 Peter 2, 9, a kingdom of priests. But thirdly, I want you to see that we have a new way of worship. Verse 5. He says, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Old Testament priests, once again, they would offer animal sacrifices to the Lord, and the blood of the animal was shed for the forgiveness of sins. But it was insufficient. Priests would have to come back year after year after year to keep providing these sacrifices because it was never sufficient. It was never enough to cover all of the sins of the people. But Jesus, the Lamb of God, was nailed to the cross as a once-for-all sacrifice. And when Jesus died, the curtain in the temple that separated man from God was torn top to bottom. At the moment Jesus died, God says, I have made a way for man to come into a right relationship with me. And it's through my son. Now this has huge implications for us. Verse 5, as the new priesthood. You see, we no longer offer up animals as a sacrifice. No, we worship now by offering ourselves. Paul says in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, Therefore I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, 
to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. There's another oxymoron. That we are holy and pleasing to God. Why? Because this is your spiritual act of worship. You see, for believers, the holy lives that we live, this is now our worship. All of your life is worship. From the type of clothes that you wear, to how you drive, to how you work at the office, to how you relate with family and friends, with how you play at the ball field, with how you eat food, with the way that you parent, and how you connect in your relationships. You see, worship is not constrained just to Sunday mornings. Worship is all of your life. It's everything you do, Monday through Sunday, it all counts. It's everything we do. And so the worship is no longer just constrained to Sunday mornings when we lift our hands and we hear God's word and we give our resources. No, worship is every moment of your life. And so Peter's saying, listen, worship is no longer about sacrificing animals. Now it's about you as a living sacrifice. You are now living for the glory of Christ. You now live for something bigger than yourselves. Worship is not constrained to Sunday mornings, but extends into every moment of your life. Which means you give God your best in here, and you give God your best out there. And that's what worship is. It's giving God the glory. It's worshiping. It's giving him your best with everything you do, making much of Christ. So let me ask you a question. Are you giving Christ your best? Not only when we gather in here as the body of Christ, but out there. And how you parent and how you love your spouse and how you work at your office. Are you making much of Christ? Is that an act of worship? You see, God wants all of you, not just some of you. So the gospel foundation of the church has created a new purpose for us. But also, number two, I want you to see that the gospel has created a new identity for God's people. Peter says here in chapter 2, verse 9. He says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his possession, so that you may proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Peter says, But you, verse 9, He's making a distinction here between unbelievers that were mentioned back in verses 7 and 8, those who have rejected Jesus, versus those who are in Christ. What's interesting to me about verse 8 is that in one sentence here, Peter presents the tension between God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. Now, I wish we had more time to unpack this today, but I, do, I don't want to miss this, what he's laid out for us here. The question is, who's responsible for unbelievers stumbling over Jesus? Well, Peter tells us. He says, they disobey the word, human responsibility. He's placing responsibility upon them. But also notice this. He says, they were destined for this, God's sovereignty. So who's responsible? Is it human responsibility or is it God's sovereignty that they're disobeying the gospel? And I believe the answer is yes. There is a holy tension that we see throughout the scriptures when it comes to God's sovereignty over salvation and man's responsibility. Both are equally true. It's interesting here how he brings this tension to bear just in a matter of one sentence. 
And if we had more time to unpack this, we could go and run this trail. But man, it's a long one. It would take a long time, but it's rich to think through God's work and salvation. But what we must affirm, no matter what, is that both are equally true. God is sovereign and man is responsible. But you see here the text, disobedience, that is not a mark of, of believers. But rather, verse 9, we're defined by a completely different identity. Peter identifies believers as first a chosen race. Just as God chose and called Israel to be his own, God has chosen and called us to be his own. Peter affirmed this already back in chapter 1, verse 3, in which he says we are elect exiles. We have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God. God did not choose you because you're awesome. God chose you because he's awesome. And so here we see God saying, I have a people in which I have chosen for myself. We are a new kind of people. And though we are diverse in our skin color and background and upbringing and pedigree in Christ, we are one race. We are in Jesus. There is no male or female, Jew or Greek, black or white, roll tide, war eagle, we are a chosen race. We are one. And y'all, we're living in a date and time in, which our, in our country in which race is a hot-button topic issue. It seems like right now our, our culture is made up of people who are talking at each other, but no one's listening. No one's humbling themselves. May I say to you, we as the church should be leading the way because we are a chosen race. Regardless of the pigmentation on your skin, we are a chosen race. We're one. doesn't matter what you look like on the outside. doesn't matter what's in your bank account. doesn't matter what your political ideology are, ideologies are. It matters, are you in Christ? And if the answer is yes, we lock arms. And we're together. We are together for the gospel, which is why we continue as a church. We'll renounce and we will put away any racism, any form whatsoever. White supremacy will not have hold on the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. We as the church are a chosen race. We're one. Which means you and I have more in common with believers in North Korea than we do with American unbelievers. We're one in Christ. But he goes on to say we're not only a chosen race, but number two, we're a royal priesthood. This expression means a group of priests that belong to a king. We're citizens of a kingdom and we serve our king. Jesus is our king and we serve under his rule and care. We are royalty because we serve under a king. Thirdly, we are a holy nation. The word holy means set apart. We're set apart from sin. We're set apart from the world. We're set apart from ungodliness and we are set apart to Christ. The word nation is the word ethnos. That's where we get the word ethnic. It's people. We are a holy people. Fourthly, we see that we are a people for his possession. The word possession means to be purchased with a price. God bought you with a price. The blood of Jesus. You see, there was a time, verse 10, in which we were not a people. But now we are the people. There was a time in which we had not received mercy, but now in Christ we have received mercy. So now, as God's new people with a new purpose and a new identity, what does this look like? What are we called to do, Kenneth? Verse 9. We are to declare 
the praises of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. You and I, until we take our last breath, we declare his praises of the one who called us. We were in the dark, but his marvelous light appeared in the face of Jesus, and we believed, and he transformed our hearts. And so now for the rest of our lives, as a church, in public, in private, in the world, in the home, we declare the praises of him who called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Thank you.